It is January 11th, and for the first time this year, the gang's all here. Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, together again. I'm Chris Quinn. It's Today in Ohio, your news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Of course, I say the gang's all here, but the most important part of the gang is you. And we're grateful that you come along for the conversation. To the news. Laura, did the Ohio House have any trouble putting together the votes it needed to override Mike DeWine's conscious driven veto of the transgender bill the legislature passed in 2023? No. Did you expect them to have any difficulty doing this when a supermajority Republican dominated House? They voted 65 to 28, mostly along party lines, to override this veto. Mike DeWine, when he issued the veto, said he did this for the kids. He said he talked to a lot of parents and he concluded that healthcare decisions for a child experiencing gender dysmorphia are very difficult and they should be made with the parents in consultation with their doctors and medical experts, not by government. And had some families told them that if they didn't have access to puberty suppressants and hormones, their children would not be alive today. So what this bill would do would ban minors from gender-affirming care and transgender girls and women from playing on female sports teams in K-12 through schools and in college. And Representative Gary Click of Sandusky County, he's obviously a Republican, he did give DeWine some credit for his last week's emergency order that prohibited children with gender dysmorphia from getting gender-affirming surgeries, which is not happening very often anyway. But he says that the government's got to protect kids from themselves, basically. Oh, God. This is, I guess, the latest in a long line of evidence of how badly our government is broken. We're supposed to have three branches of government that are co-equal, judicial, Mm -hmm. executive, legislative. But because the legislators have cheated to completely slant the body that they're in with gerrymandering, We've ended up with a whole bunch of extremists in the legislature that don't represent the central centrist of Ohio. We saw where Ohio stands in all the issue votes last year. They're right down the middle. That's who Ohio Mm -hmm. is. Our legislature is not. It is extremely to the right. So we have the tyranny of the minority. This is a tiny group of people. We have uh, the the, uh, people who've been elected to the legislature are the wingiest of wingnuts. This does not represent what Ohio wants. Mike DeWine does. Mike DeWine used his conscience to come up with a reasonable approach that you can debate, but you can't question his motive or his sincerity. These folks don't care. They're, and they don't represent us. They don't represent most of Ohio. They only represent the people who vote in their party primaries. The party primaries have got to go. We've got to get rid of them. We've got to fix gerrymandering. Our government's broken. The, he vetoed this. That used to mean something, but it doesn't because they can right. do anything they want with the broken level of government we have. And remember, we were just talking about this in the newsroom yesterday, and you said, you know, they haven't touched marijuana yet. We passed this in November. We need rules. But instead of getting on that and figuring out how it's going to work in Ohio and all the logistics, they're concentrating on overriding the governor's veto of this. When Something like 1% of Ohioans identify as transgender. This is not a huge issue. If you're looking at girls, transgender girls who play sports in high school, it's it's a minuscule amount. And they already have to go through several hoops with the Ohio High School Sports Association. And so why this is their first priority out of the 
you know, off the jump in 2024, I think you're right. This is just like saying, hey, look, we're in charge. All the Republicans, all the very, we've got a party primary coming up in in March. And we are the ones that you represent this very conservative, very fringe, the people who vote in the primary. The the other... Go ahead, Lisa. No, I was just going to say, this isn't governing. It's virtue signaling. That's all they're doing. They're rallying the extremist troops is what they're doing. I do think, though, it reflects that they lack brain power because the people spoke pretty clearly last year. And if you're listening, and I know some people in the party who are not extremists who are paying, did pay attention to what happened last year. They look at the voting patterns and they thought, huh, that's not Ohio. What we see happening here is not Ohio. You would have thought that at least a couple of the legislators would have the brain power to see that and say, you know what? The governor made a conscious driven decision. I got to respect that. I'm going to change my vote. Not one did. They're all in unison lemmings leaping off the cliff. The, the people of Ohio won't take it. We've proven it. We proved it last year. We won't take this kind of overlord system that's been created. So we'll create more constitutional amendments to put on the ballot. And if they're not in overreach, they'll be passed. This was their chance to show they respect the will of the people. And instead, they, they've taken another extreme measure and completely devalued the governor's office and the executive side. And we don't have the tricameral government that we are supposed to. I just want to point out that it's not like Governor DeWine vetoes things very often. I mean, we you guys talked last week about him signing off on the utility charges, right? For, for it's basically a tax for all Ohioans that they get to pay to a pipeline to nowhere. I mean, he has signed off on letting fracking happen in state parks, although not on top of it, you know, to the side. So all of these things, it's not like Mike DeWine is standing up regularly and telling the legislature to back down. So when he is taking a stand, that's very rare occurrence in Ohio these days. And it should the be The other respected. thing is that, you know, last week we saw Mike DeWine issue that executive order that you would have thought would have satisfied a lot of the Republicans who have issues related to this, you know, and I'm surprised that that, that wasn't the case. I, I think it gets back to brain power. I just don't think they're, they have sense. I think we've elected a bunch of nincompoops. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Can anyone legitimately argue that Jim Jordan has not already locked up the title of hypocrite of 2024? Layla, what did he do Wednesday to make that pretty much a lock? Jordan and, and other Republicans in the House Judiciary Committee tried to adopt a report finding Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for, for not testifying before House committees when he was summoned last month to participate in Republicans' impeachment inquiry. This subpoena was for testimony related to their probe of the Biden family's business affairs. If they decide that that Joe Biden abused his office, Republicans intend to pursue impeachment. But Democrats were really quick to remind Jordan of his own refusal to honor a 2022 subpoena from the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So while the Republicans were trying to get their report adopted, finding Biden in contempt, the Democrats were trying to amend that report to include a contempt finding against Jordan. (laughs) So uh, one of the funnier parts of this story, I thought, was Democratic Representative Adam Schiff who introduced that particular motion about Jordan. He was a member of the January 6th committee. He told Jordan, 
I know the chairman wouldn't want an ordinary citizen to be treated differently from a member of Congress. <laughs> yeah, but Jim <laughs> Jordan that. clearly believes some people are more weaker than others. Hey, look, this is the height of hypocrisy. I don't think you can become more hypocritical. He defied a congressional subpoena and now is on his high horse about Hunter Biden, who who is not defying Congress. He's just saying, I'll do it in the open because right. I don't trust you to be honest about what I say. He pulled a brilliant move yesterday showing up. He humiliated the Republicans in Congress. He's ready to talk. Why do they have to do it behind closed doors? Do right. it out in the open. Jordan wouldn't even do that. I, I just can't believe he has that much audacity. I would I would have thought he would have kept his mouth shut yesterday and just kind of hidden in a corner. Right. Especially, I mean, considering that back then he was referred to the House Ethics Committee for failing to honor the subpoenas. But of course, Congress shifted to Republican control and they declined to take it up. So this should be, I mean, they were kind of like, the Democrats were like, you think that the American people's memories were wiped clean after that happened? No. Why are you? Look, <laughs> How dare you? But, you know, of course, Jordan was completely dismissive of this during the Judiciary Committee meeting. He he said he, his denial of the subpoena on the January 6th case was completely justifiable, and he just moved on. But th- look, this gets back to what we were talking about. Ohioans have shown at the polls, they're very common sense oriented. They don't like dirty play, like putting an election in August after you've outlawed August elections. This is the same thing. This is dirty play. And and there's no way you can mask it. I mean, it is, I'm telling you, there's nothing more hypocritical than this. He defied a congressional subpoena and now is on his high horse wanting to throw Hunter Biden away because he did the same thing. Amazing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about a couple of J.D. Vance stories. I hoped yesterday that calling him out on a program to help the disadvantaged get broadband might change his thought about supporting it. This story has a great outcome, Lisa. What is it? Are you saying that you influenced his no, decision? I, I'm not saying that. I just, I we get so many harebrained press releases from him. I mean, he it's every day he puts out some lunatic press release taking issues on things. And, you know, a lot of what he has done has not been good for communities with non-white people. So this is one where it's like, this helps a lot of urban areas, but he did the right thing. What did he do? Yeah, he did. He's co-sponsor of an, of legislation that extends the Affordable Connectivity Program with a cash infusion of $7 billion because the current funding is set to expire on April 30th. So this program has helped 1.1 million Ohioans with discounted internet services, about $30 a month, and it's helped over 22 million people nationwide wide. Vance says, you know, 23% of Ohio households have benefited from this program. Ohio has the second highest enrollment in the nation. He said, this is exactly the type of program my family would have benefited from. He says, we must ensure that low-income families, both rural and urban, aren't cut off from online access. And of course, he grew up poor in, in Ohio, in Appalachian, Ohio. Um, the Affordable Con- Connectivity Program Extension Act is supported by 400 organizations, including AT&T, Comcast, AARP, the AFL-CIO, and the Communications Workers of America. Yeah, I'm gl- I was just glad to see the support. This should happen. It helps a lot more people get connected, and we know how much that means for educational opportunities and everything else. So I give credit to J.D. Vance for doing the right thing. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. Another J.D. Vance story. Why does he and some other legislators think the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's handling of his prostate cancer merits his firing by President Joe Biden? Laura? I'm waiting to hear a take on this if you're going to give Vance any, any kudos for this story. But the defense secretary failed to immediately let the White House know he was hospitalized after a medical emergency on New Year's Day, January 1st. So he went to Walter Reed and he had surgery for complications from prostate. So he had to hospitalize from the, the complications from a prostate cancer surgery. And they didn't learn of that until January 4th. That's when Biden found out about it. Congress wasn't informed until January 5th. And on January 6th, Austin released a statement. He said he could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed, but he said he's committed to do better. Vance is saying this is not okay, that it's out of line. He should be forced to resign or he should be fired because he called this a weekend at Bernie's situation with the world's most powerful military and said it's disgraceful. It suggests that the engine is running, but no one's behind the wheel. And it's chaos for the United States all across the world. A big, big problem. I guess HIPAA rules don't apply when you're running the military. Um, <laughs> we, we should point out, it's not like his disappearance means there's nobody in a decision-making role. There are other people in the Pentagon who are smart. But it, right. what is alarming is the president didn't know. Um, it, you could argue that medical procedures are private. We, you know, The HIPAA does pretty much keep you from getting any information but he is the head of the armed right. services, and the president of the United States did not know he was incapacitated. There is a problem there. Yeah, if I was in the hospital, I would let you know, just just, <laughs> just so you know. But I also I mean, know that if I were in the hospital suddenly, that the wheels would not fall off our newsroom. It would continue operating because we have a collection of very smart people to keep it operating, as does the military. Right. And so Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, she took over many of his duties. Of course, she was vacationing in Puerto Rico at the time, and she did not know that Austin was hospitalized. So you do think that, yes, you would tell the people you are closest to. It doesn't need to be a press release. Like This is not – it's a personal situation, right? But you would think your deputy and your boss would just know, hey, I'm out of pocket. Um, this is a medical issue, and I'll let – you know, that's it. Yeah. It's, it's not a it, – long conversation. It's alarming and answers are needed. Whether he should be fired is seems a bit extreme to me, but you are listening to Today in Ohio. You'd think that firearms owners would be so cognizant of the fact that they are carrying a gun that they would never try to take one on a plane. They do though. Layla, how many times did they do it at Cleveland Hopkins last year? I think once is too much, in my opinion. This is scary as can be. In 2023, airport officers discovered 38 handguns and luggage around travelers. And that was a slight increase from 2022 when they found 35 guns. TSA screened almost 5.3 million travelers last year at the airport. That's one firearm discovered for every 138,000 passengers. Down in Columbus at the John Glenn Columbus International Airport, they also saw an increase in firearms detected at checkpoints. The agency's officers found 55 firearms, an increase from 40 in 2022. Akron-Canton Airport and Rickenbacker International Airport in Columbus, they each discovered three firearms at checkpoints. So in all, uh, more than 6,700 firearms were stopped at airports across the country. At least 93% of them were loaded. 
Oh, my God. So TSA's Ohio security director recommends that passengers always start with a completely empty suitcase when you pack for a trip so you don't make the mistake of packing a bag where a gun might be tucked away in one of the compartments, which really scares the hell out of me that there are gun owners out there who might, you know, forget where they're putting their guns. And that was kind of this guy's point. Responsible gun owners know where their guns are. But travelers can, can bring firearms in a checked bag if the weapons are unloaded and packed separately from the ammunition in a locked case, they have to tell airline employees that they have a firearm in their checked bag. I, I keep trying to grasp how this could happen because I, I know we all do doofus things. We all are forgetful once in a while and we all leave things behind. But to have a gun in a bag as you walk to check it in, you would think, oh my God, I have a gun. And I, I suppose that if you travel a lot by car, and you carry a gun because you're worried about your safety and you generally keep that bag ready to go. I guess you could do it that way. I just, it's so hard to fathom for me how you could make this doofus move. Well, one thing that occurs to me is that I bet, a, I bet there are a lot of women who keep a gun in their purse and they're just hauling that purse with them as their carry on. And, uh, you know. Okay, but but okay, say but say you were one of them, right? And you're going up to the place where you know your bag is about to get checked. Wouldn't you go, "Oops, I got to get out of line. I'm carrying a gun." I just Well, I I'm not a gun carrier, so I can't. But I I imagine though that there are people who like, I mean, it's just another accessory. It's like in there with bottle. your lipstick and your water bottle. Yeah, right. right. You're like, like, "Oh, I have to drink all my water before I walk through." Like, I Yeah, have to right. You know how you gun. have you might have something in your your big over the shoulder bag that you know you don't realize is contraband like the water bottle or so you know to some people they don't even think about their gun well, they just keep the, a loaded gun in their purse one of the things that we're told all the time by people who support gun rights is that gun owners are really responsible this isn't responsible this is pretty flagrant so i it just and it costs them a fortune i mean it's a crime they get fined heavily it it turns into a nightmare for them but Wow. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What happens when a polar vortex meets El Nino? Is this going to happen early next week? Does the cold wave win out over the warming trends of El Nino? Lisa, this is the talker story of the day. It's polar vortex for the win, I'm afraid. Um, (laughs) El Nino, just to explain, El Nino is a cyclical warming of Pacific Ocean waters near the equator, so it only happens every few years. And this, of course, results in warm, dry winters in Northeast Ohio and elsewhere. The polar vortex is always around. It's a large, low-pressure area at either pole, the North and South Poles. And if you look at a map, it's kind of contained up there in like a little circle. The the jet stream kind of keeps it pushed up, you know, and down to the south, but they grow stronger in the winter. And so this pushes cold, frigid air south from the North Pole and then feeds into the lake effect snow that we experience here. El Nino does make temperatures warmer in winter, but it can't keep the polar vortex from happening. It just can't. National Weather Service of Cleveland uh, meteorologist Keith Jaska says, due to El Nino, we're not going to have any really record-breaking temperatures, even with the polar vortex. He says we tend to have fewer single-digit and below zero lows in Cleveland because of El Nino years. In non-El Nino years, the average of uh, single digit or negative temperatures is about 14.2 days. 
Only 11 days of that, though, in 2015 and 2016 and 57 and 58 when we had strong El Nino years. So Monday morning here in Northeast Ohio, we have an expected low of about five degrees. It'll be the first single digit low in over a year. Yeah, they, they, there really isn't a contrast here. I mean, in every El Nino year, you still have some cold weather. It's just a matter of how much. No one can deny that the first month of winter has been incredibly mild. Gray, gray is all get out, so little sun, but but not cold. And it's not surprising that we're about to get hit with bitter cold. And Laura is just ecstatic because she can go skiing. Yes, but I would like to point out that the high is something around 15. So these are not as bitterly cold as some of the polar vortex temperatures we've seen in the past. Like, that's manageable, I think. <laughs> it is only January 11th. We do have time to go here. But it, uh, it's a really fascinating story put together on this. Uh, who wrote it? Was it Zachary that wrote this? Zachary, Zachary yes. yes. Yeah, he did a nice job. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com, and you're listening to Today in Ohio. The benefits of a drug originally developed for diabetes just keep coming. Not only does this class of drugs work to help obese people lose a lot of weight, but we now know that at least one of them has another great side effect. Layla, what is it? Well, evidence shows that Wegovy and Ozempic may reduce a person's risk for colorectal cancer. Researchers at Case published a study finding that patients taking the class of medications known as GLP-1 receptor agonists for diabetes had a lower incidence of colorectal cancer than those patients who had been prescribed other drugs for the same condition. Researchers drew upon this national database of more than 100 million electronic health records. They matched as many people as possible with the same characteristics, sex, race, age, socioeconomic determinants of health, and, and other medical conditions. And they compared the number of cases of colorectal cancer in patients who had been treated with a bunch of different anti-diabetic drugs in a 14-year time span from 2005 to 2019. And they found a 44% reduction an incidence of colorectal cancer in patients treated with this class of medications compared to the same number of patients uh, treated with insulin, and a 25% reduction in incidence of colorectal cancer when compared to patients treated with metformin. So pretty dramatic findings considering that colorectal cancer is the third leading type of cancer in both sexes with 153,000 new cases per year. It's also the second leading cause of cancer mortality. You, you got to think that this is a direct result of reducing obesity. Obesity poses all these extra risks for people, and that's why it's something that they well, grapple with. Well, what was interesting about this was that the study's findings were true across all body types, whether the patient has obesity or not. So I'd really like to know what is the theory about why this drug has this miraculous preventive capability? Because if it were simply that obesity is a risk factor for this type of cancer and these meds help the patient lose weight, then that really does make sense. But the finding that even thin patients were better protected from colorectal cancer than they were by your traditional diabetes treatments I mean, what's going on there? I don't know. I think it's a little early to draw conclusions on these drugs, quite frankly, and the side effects are troubling. I mean, one of the side effects is gastroparesis, which means it paralyzes your intestinal system. So that seems kind of contraindication, you know, for reducing colorectal cancer. I don't know. Mm. I I'm a little suspicious. Well, I, you can't deny that it's helping a whole lot of obese people who've been grappled with weight issues their whole lives reduce that weight, which does 
get rid of a whole bunch of risk factors for a whole bunch of other things. But not all obese people have those risk factors. I just want to point that out. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why does the state have $1.7 million in back wages belonging to 4,200 Ohioans? And what is it doing to get that money back into the right hands? Lisa. Yeah, the U.S. Labor Department has created the Workers Owed Wages website, which has a search tool to help these 4,200 Ohio workers find back wages if they're owed them. Usually this typically occurs when a final paycheck hasn't been paid out or they left the job and didn't get their final paycheck. The unclaimed money is held three years by the wage and hour division of the labor department, but a lot of it is because they can't find these people. They've changed addresses, they've changed names, so you know they can be hard to find to get their money to them. So if you go to this website, it's dol.gov slash agencies slash WHD slash W-O-W. So they'll ask you for your employer and the state you worked in. If results are found, you go through a series of questions and then you can be emailed a backwage claim form, create a login account, and then you have to, you know, upload that form and you have to have supporting documents to do this. You have to have, you know, one of, you know, the following, a social security card, a driver's license or state ID, a W-2 form or a pay stub or other supporting documents. It'll take about six weeks to process if you are owed money and then you'll get that check. I think a lot of people might be surprised by the unclaimed funds that they're owed if they only checked. When my dad died a while back, I was his executor and I had to do this search and I found no end of unclaimed funds in multiple states that he had just never taken the time to get. It wasn't insignificant and I I checked for myself and found nothing, but I do wonder if this this adds to that kind of unclaimed funds issue. Well, and I remember they used to publish it in the paper. They'd get this big, it was like a big magazine insert of, you know, people who may be owed money. So this is a much better way to handle that. Well, actually, I kind of liked when it was in the paper because it helped pay all of our salaries. (laughs) That went away when politicians declared war on the media. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Polar Vortex story was the talker of the day. This is the fun story of the day. Joe Flacco is the new Cleveland hero, having stepped in midseason to quarterback the Browns into the playoffs, which start this weekend. Mary Kay Cabot interviewed the veteran quarterback's family to fill Cleveland in on all the details of our new Athlete of the Year. Laura, what did we learn? This is just the cutest story about the absolutely cutest family. We learned all about Joe Flacco sorry, <clears throat> and what he was up to while he was waiting for an NFL team to call. And he really was just like hoping to get a call. And my favorite information in this story was that he was the quarterback in high school and his wife, Dana, was the co-captain of the cheerleading squad, which is just like you want to make a movie of this, right? They still live in the same tiny New Jersey town, Audubon, where they grew up. Their family still lives there. And Joe goes out and throws passes with his dad and brothers. And so he talked about what it was like when he didn't have work and he was ferrying the kids around, taking them to their activities because he has five kids. And by the way, he's one of six. He was even taking piano lessons like his daughter. And he, he actually brought the sheet music to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when he came to, to Cleveland. I don't know if he's had much time to practice since he's been here. But he said... 
people would come up to it and be like, how's retirement? And he, he's like, he doesn't want to go into it with people. And sometimes he says it's going good. And other times he's like, well, I'm not actually retired and I do want to play. And so, yes, playing is what he's doing. And uh, really cute pictures of the family on the field after they clinched that playoff spot. The whole family said it was like better than the Super Bowl. There's all sorts of interesting details in here. You know, one is that he has a pretty serious food regimen and his -hmm. wife said, yeah, whatever he's eating, we're all eating. I'm not making multiple meals. And it's just filled with colorful anecdotes like that. So, you know, like those five kids are eating like the healthiest food possible. I'm so impressed with since I have a child who basically just wants to eat pasta all the time, like how you get your family to do that. But um, yeah, the boys all look up to their dad, obviously. And they all, I guess Dana had ordered them jerseys for Christmas, you know, with his number and his name, and they didn't get there in time, which is like, if you're the quarterback's family, can't you just say to the Browns head office, "Um, I need some kid shirts? Like that should be pretty easy, right? But I guess, you know, it's not like they had a whole back supply of them. What just comes across is the good nature of this family. He's just a good guy, which doesn't surprise anybody who grew up in South Jersey here, here. And, you know, we're, we're all very proud of him, us New Jerseyans for doing good. I hope he delivers big wins to Ohio. It's, uh, it's just one of the coolest stories to come down the pike after all of the animosity over (sighs) Deshaun Watson to get this really decent human being as the quarterback leading them down the road. It's tremendous. Like the kids of Joe Flacco are like the absolute opposite of the Deshaun Watson story. It is the most feel good sports story. You do wonder if all of the women who abandoned this team in anger over Deshaun Watson are being uh, brought back because this is the antithesis of that. I mean, can we remember we're still paying Deshaun Watson, right? Like, uh, yeah, I know, but, he's, but he's, he's not the guy. I mean, the thing is, Flacco, when you see him, he's just having a good time. He never expected this. And, you know, Cleveland hated him because he had a very, very strong record against Cleveland. He was not our hero when he was playing for, for uh, the Ravens. Check out Mary Kay's story. It's long, but it is loaded with good information. It'll run in print one of these days. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. Come back Friday. We'll wrap up the week of news.